1979, you've got Dick Seavers, you've got Vernon Johnson. Dick moves to Manuka, and he's in a place of saying, man, you know, I came from a really great church, but driving way all the way back out to Joliet is, is something where it's just tough. I really feel like there, what if we had a church right in this community that was able to teach God's word? And so in the midst of that, you also have Vernon Johnson, this guy who, who's uh, working over at Manuka Grain and Lumber. And he um, is part of a church, but he's, he's not really experiencing God's word at that church. Uh, they're not teaching it. And, and so and, and on top of that, the church that he was a part of kind of had a low view of Scripture, like it's good, it's just not like God's Word. It's not God-inspired. And so you've got these two guys who have a desire to have a, a place, a, a church that would actually communicate God's Word in this town. And, and uh, Dick Seavers had already had it in his heart that that would be something that he would take that step, but he wanted to know if God was going to come up with a sign. And his sign was that this guy, Vernon Johnson, who he didn't agree on a lot of stuff with, he said, if Vernon Johnson, this other believer in Manuka, wants to take that step, he'll pull the trigger and actually take, step into that. And so after one day of walking out of Manuka Grain and Lumber, after making an order for wood for a, a building he was going to be building, he walks out and Vernon Johnson catches up with him and says, Dick, if you ever want to plant a church in this town, I'm game. And from that moment on was where they started out with a group of third, with a, with a small Bible study, studying God's word, because their, their belief was that if we actually got into God's word, that would be the thing that would transform not only us, but this whole community. And so in the midst of that, that's where that started. Then 38 people started up in 1979, this thing called Manuka Bible Church. And today, it's kind of cool, because I'm seeing not only the grandkids of those early charter members, but the great grandkids at Manuka Bible Church today of those early charter members, which just blows my mind. Now, the thing that they were asking back in 79 was the same thing we're asking today, some key issues and some key questions about life. One of them being, okay, so you're all about the Bible, because we've got lots of churches, but they don't, they don't all look at the Bible the same way. When you say that you believe the Bible, I have to ask you the question, why? Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you put your trust in that as being God's word? And so Dick and Vernon had to come up with an answer to that. And within the Articles of Faith, um, they did. And so throughout this whole series, we're actually getting into, we've got the entire Articles of Faith separated out into the 12 questions in this book. Um, if you walk by it, um, totally snag one of these. Again, we're charging um, half the price of a Starbucks coffee for these. So they're $3. And so um, if you get them, they've got not only the notes from the series, but each of of the days following, we have like a reading plan that you can go through and read God's word in support of, well, why do we believe that? Like, how do you know that you can believe that? Just because I'm saying it? Or do you want to investigate it yourself and you get a chance to do that? So make sure you snag one of these after the service. But we're going to be going through the answer to that question, why should I trust the Bible first off? And so let's take a look here. We believe the, the, that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, verbal plenary Inspired Word of God as represented in the original manuscripts. The Bible consists of 66 books written under, by men under the superintendence or the management of the Spirit. Think, think like if you have a superintendent at work, that's the person that's kind of managing the process so that the Holy Spirit was the person in that job for writing Scripture. God's Word has been delivered once and for all to the saints and therefore the canon of Scripture is closed. All right, so let's go ahead and unpack this because, I mean, that's saying a lot. So what, what did they mean when they wrote that, when they developed that? First off, they're saying that first section, that, that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, verbal, plenary, inspired word of God as represented in the original manuscripts. That means that when God actually, when God actually used his words to get into people's, right, the authors of the Bible, 40-some authors of the Bible, that it was actually not man's words, but it was God's words. 
Paul put this in, in his letter to Timothy, and this, is, this says it all. Every scripture is inspired by God. I actually like how the NIV translates that better. Every scripture is God-breathed, <sighs> came from God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, that the person de- dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. Now, how many of you, have, you drive a vehicle that has an owner's manual in the glove box? And you just love it. I mean, you're just like, oh, this is just, like I read page 72. <laughs> the author just got me. No, we don't do that. It's like, it's like the most ridiculous, we, we like keep it in there until you're like, oh man, I seriously have no idea. But it, we don't even do that because we can go to YouTube and hack the same problem way easier. The owner's manual in a car means nothing to us because, well, it, it's written by somebody. He kind of wrote it super technical and I don't know the dude. The Bible is different, and the beginning state, because after the first line, it's saying everything that an owner manual does. An owner manual is helpful. It it can train you. It can correct what you're doing wrong with your vehicle, but it doesn't have what the first line of what Paul said in in 2 Timothy says. Every scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, which means that it is my final authority. It's my supreme court of truth. If you've been watching the news at all, you can tell that people are really heated about someone getting in. And it doesn't matter what they've done, both sides are going to be having a difficult time with the other side picking whoever that is. Or even the investigation of what that person's done in their past because it's so important because of the fact that they realize that whoever you put in charge in the Supreme Court makes the law of the land. The country is in submission to the Supreme Court's decision. So whether you're on one side or the other, you're fighting like tooth and nails because that person matters big time. And so when we get to scripture, we're saying the same thing. We're saying there's lots of authorities in this world, but we're saying that this is the, this is the Supreme Court. It's the final authority. And so you better be sure about that because that matters. If that's your final authority, it matters. Now, what we're also saying in the fact that it's the Supreme Court of truth, we're saying that it's not the everything, everything that is true is in here. There are truths outside of the Bible. For example, if you want to know how to change your oil, you're not going to find that in Leviticus, okay? If you're looking for the best way to get to Chicago at 2.30 in the afternoon, you're not going to find that in the book of Acts. That, those are tr- there's truths out there that are nowhere in here. But all we're saying is that all the truths out there are checked. There's lots of truths in this world, but they're all checked under the final authority of Scripture. Scripture is the umbrella of truth that anything that is true won't conflict with what we see in God's Word. It's the supreme court of truth when when read in its original context. But not only that, it's also God's perfect words through imperfect lips. If you've run into anybody who's got an issue with the Bible because it's written by really messed up people, you are going to get zero argument here. There are people that do things I would never do that wrote the Bible, like murderers and like adulterers. Like people do like, ter- like some really sketchy stuff wrote the Bible. And yet the Bible recorded that they did it. It didn't censor it out. It didn't airbrush their track record. It said, yeah, they're, they were messed up. And God used them anyway. The Bible consists of 66 books written by men under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was managing the actual words that they were using, using their personalities, using their writing styles. That's why it's, it doesn't read like one person wrote the whole thing, and yet there's continuity like there was. God used 40-something authors to pull that off under the management 
of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that passage later, so I'm going to skip over that. But the third thing that we need to know why we should trust the Bible is because it's all the data that I need to follow God with all of my heart. There's one of my biggest frustrations with the Bible is it doesn't spell everything out. Like there's things in the Bible I wish it said. Like I wish it said, oh, and by the way, on this date, Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. Boom. I could say, great. I can plan for that. I could put it on a calendar. I wish that this spelled out um, exactly what to do in this situation. Like give me specifics on this. But instead, it doesn't. And that's kind of frustrating because it doesn't give me everything that I need. Um, yesterday was a crazy busy day. I went to Ryland's uh, cross-country meet, which was in Lamont, and then I drove up to Naperville um, for a, a, a massive band uh, competition in Naperville, and then I drove back here. I had to get back to Manuka for Saturday service. And the thing that helped me out in that whole day of how busy and sketchy it was was something that I love so very, very much, GPS. I love GPS. Because <laughs> some of you, some of you in here, like you're real, like how many of you are people that get lost fairly easily? Okay, you're honest. How many of you like, no, I, I, don't even, I don't get lost. In fact, I don't even need GPS. I can just like put my, air, my head out the window and go. <laughs> That's the way. That's you. I don't relate to you people because I can get lost in my house. And so this is the thing that is frustrating is that getting lost is something where for people like me, God just said, and then I created GPS. And it's like, it's, it's so cool because it's gotten better and better, but I love it because it, I'm up in Naperville and I, I need to get home. And, and so I'm punching in all the, the, you know, the address and it's like, okay, Errol, here's the path. It's going to take you 38 minutes. And as I'm going, all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? There's an accident ahead. Why don't you go? I'm like, thank you. Make a left here instead of a right. I didn't know that, but you're in outer space and you can see down what's happening. And I'm just like, thank you. Thank you. And, and it's all of a sudden, my whole way home, I'm getting navigated. I knew exactly how to get home. You know what I didn't know? How cool this one particular old building was that I was going to drive by and how much I wanted to go check it out. I'm like, oh, I got Saturday service, but that's such a cool building. Look how old it is. It's awesome. I had no information about when I passed by this one forest preserve. There was all these people out on the corner, and I didn't know if they were protesting or if they were just like enjoying the beautiful weather. I had no clue. My GPS told me zilch about that. My GPS told me zilch about whether or not it was going to stay a beautiful day or if it was going to get colder, if a rogue storm was going to come through. I didn't know. My GPS was not going to tell me any of that. What was my GPS going to tell me? How to get home. It told me everything I knew on how to get home. And I'll get home in 38 minutes. I, everything I need to know about how to get home. And the Bible is like that. It will not spell out how to pass your AP chemistry test. It won't. But it will give you everything that you need. Not everything that you want. Everything you need to get home. When we get to, the reason that we say that the canon is closed, and the canon is like the measuring rod of Scripture, like this is the inspired Word of God, and this is not. And, and just as a little tangential thing, a lot of times um, people who come from a Catholic backdrop, which is like 90% of our church, including our worship pastor, say, well, what's, what's the deal? We've got like, you, you're missing books in here. Like in our, our Bible, there's like, like several books in between the Old Testament and New Testament, and you don't have them. And, and, the, and are you saying that they're bad or they're evil or wicked or something? And the answer is no. In fact, I think that Christians should study the books that, that which you, you, you find in the Apocrypha um, that are the deuterocanonical books that, are, that most Catholic Bibles have because they're historical. They give you insight on what was happening in the culture. But it would be like saying that that's bi the Bible would be like taking a history book that you have in your junior year and duct taping it to your Bible and saying this is the word of God. 
Well, oh, it's not the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and, and you have a history book. And so we look at those books as being helpful and good, just not on the level of being inspired by God. Does that make sense? And so within a lot of Protestant Bibles, you won't see them, but unfortunately, I think a lot of Protestants are ignorant of those books when they actually are helpful to understand what was happening between the Old Testament and the New. So check those out, but just realize that they're historical. They're not, they're not on the level of Scripture. The end of the book of the Bible and the, and the end of the book of Revelation it's like you go through the whole Bible. We have the Old Testament. It's all about the Old Testament history. And then you have the New Testament where it's uh, Jesus' ministry. And then he dies on the cross. And then he rises from the grave. And then pew, explodes the church out and the world. And they're writing letters. And all of a sudden, it's like that's at the end of the first century. And then you get all the way fast forward to the, the vision that John gets of the end of the world. And especially in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, the book of Revelation, it's all like this future reality, Right? And the interesting thing he says at the end is this. He passes this on from God. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy contained in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city that are described in this book. Let me just give one clarification here that, that is important for us to know. John isn't necessarily referring to the whole of the Bible here. John was passing on a vision of the future that was in, in, contained in the book of Revelation. This statement is about the book of Revelation that we shouldn't take away or add to that vision of what was happening. It's not talking about the Bible as a whole. However, what we pick up from a sideways vantage point on that is this. We have inspired history of what God did. We have inspired ministry of Jesus of what God did. We have the inspired what happened in the early church of what God did. And then God wants to give us a picture of the future. And that's the end. And John says, don't add anything else to this future perspective. And what that helps us understand is that we don't need the Holy Spirit to write a new book for us, like the book of Jason Domingos or something like that. And we're like, oh, that's really helpful for us to learn what God inspired Jason to write. That doesn't happen. The canon is actually closed, so we're not continuing to duct tape new books to this because God's given us the future, the last vision of what we need to know, and he's given us all the data I need to know with, to follow God with all my heart. If you want to follow God and you're frustrated that you're not, this is the book to help you do that, to know who God is and how to follow him with all of your heart. And that is what you need to know. That's why we should trust the Bible. But how do we actually step into that? Because you might still honestly still be on the fence about that. Like, seriously, I'm here with someone I love that's all in on this, but I'm not totally sure I am. And so how do I step into the burden that, that Dick Seavers and Vernon Johnson had back then for this community? If, if, if I'm going to take a step into that, what are, what, are, what are the steps to do that? Well, the first step is this, to open yourself up to the fact that the Bible is in fact reliable to get you to truth. Like open, I mean, again, this is one of those things where you have to open yourself up to the possibility that the Bible is in fact what it claims to be, which is God's word. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe that right now, but I'm saying open yourself up to that. And here's why I think you should believe that, because it, it answers the toughest questions like, well, just even about the Bible itself. How can the Bible be true if so many intelligent people don't believe it's true? One of the great pushbacks, like, seriously, there's some seriously smart people who don't believe the Bible, and I'm not so smart. Who am I to say that that dude's wrong if he's so crazy smart and he doesn't believe the Bible? Well, part of the thing I would, I would challenge that guy, the super intelligent smart guy, is this. Like, are you interrogating your beliefs as much as you're interrogating the beliefs about God's word? Because if you do, you might find that you land in a completely different ballpark. If you actually doubt your doubts, 
and you believe your beliefs, if you actually step into that in a real way. A guy that we talked to, one of the smartest writers and communicators that I've read is this guy named Vodi Bakum, and we, we talked about him last week. He's a guy who was skeptical about faith all the way up through college until he investigated it himself. And his perspective on, when, he, when people ask him, How, why do you believe the Bible? He says this, I choose. I choose to believe the Bible because, which is great, because he's not just saying, I choose to believe the Bible because my dad told me it's God's word. I choose to believe the Bible because I, I went to a church and the pastor seems to believe that. So maybe I, uh, if I'm in the club of Christianity, I probably have to do that. Vody, that wasn't good for Vody. Vody said, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Why do we believe the Bible? Because we believe that this is in fact a collection of historical documents that were actually written in the time of eyewitnesses so that it could be falsified, that people could stand up and say, whoa, 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 that didn't happen. And that in fact, that because it doesn't simply claim to be a historical book written by dudes, but it actually claims that it's written by God. And so if that's the case, it probably is gonna have to stand up to some serious scrutiny. And one of them being, well, hold on a sec, how do you believe that, Vody? Wasn't the Bible actually written hundreds of years after the events record, were recorded? Like take, for example, the, the key thing that if you're a Christian, if this isn't true, you just, just cash it in because everything else is just bogus. The resurrection of Christ, that is fantasy. How in the world does someone die and then they come back to life? You don't see that. When does that happen? I'm not, I'm I'm not talking like a defib, like clear, but I'm talking like three days later. That doesn't happen. Except that the only way for it not to have happened and for this to explode the way it has was for something where most skeptics believe that the Bible and the accounts of the resurrection were written hundreds of years after it took place. That's enough time for people to start with the story about this good teacher, Jesus, and, and end with the story that he, or, and continue on that story that he was oppressed by both the Jews and the Romans and, and get to the point where, and, and he died on a cross. And then a long time goes by and then all of a sudden you could say, but he didn't stay dead. He actually was God. Did you know that? He was not only a human, he was also God. And then get to a, a proper accounting where you could actually record what we read in the Gospels. That accounting of why you shouldn't believe the Bible makes complete sense until you do the work. And I've said this before, but the thing that's causing seriously thinking agnostics and seriously thinking atheists to stop that perspective is actually studying the data that says, whoa, we, okay, we know that Paul was a historical figure. We know that Paul was a skeptic to Jesus. He was an atheist with regard to Jesus being the Christ. And we also know that this Paul, this historical figure who was a skeptical, scholarly person, wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. We don't necessarily believe all the Bible was written by who it says, but we believe that Paul did. And Paul, within 20 years of the crucifixion and supposed resurrection, is saying that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross, that Jesus, in fact, rose from the grave, and he's calling out names of people you can go check the, the data with. Because he didn't simply have a spiritual experience. He went back and he interviewed the eyewitnesses before he wrote the book. And because he wrote something within two decades of the event, after interviewing people, all of a sudden, their reliable, the reliability of Scripture just goes up to the world, goes up to the ceiling. 9-11 happened almost 20 years ago. People are still writing about that after interviewing eyewitnesses. 
the accounting of the resurrection is the same. And so wasn't the Bible actually written hundreds of years after the events recorded? No, in fact, we, we see that it was recording things that were taking place. Amazingly so. Not only that, but we also have the question of, but, well, yeah, but how can we really know what God told the original writers? Isn't our modern Bible just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy times a zillion? Like, isn't that like, I mean, seriously, I mean, how do, this is just a translation, right? Of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. So like, this is, this is like a hodgepodge of people's perspectives. This isn't like God's words. It's not reliable to, to that until you realize, and you can make that statement, but you would know zero about antiquity if you made that statement because those who understand antiquity and, and actually old uh, the way that books were, were crafted and copied say something completely different in fact um how many of you read homer's iliad in high school or college or junior high or something like that okay we are confident homer wrote that when we're confident that the actual what we have in that poetic work is actually his words we, we have it's reliable and, it, and we're confident in it it has six hundred manuscripts, like early, the earliest manuscripts have 600 of those. And so we have high probability that 600 manuscripts are indicating the fact that Homer actually wrote that. Now, the, man, the earliest manuscript we have is 2,100 years past when he actually wrote it. But even though it's 2,100 years, we actually still believe he wrote it and what we have in that book, in that poetic work, was actually his. 600 copies of the manuscript 2,100 years from the date, and we're still confident that it's reliable. The Bible, the Bible, we have 6,000 early manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. Six, not 600, not 60, 6,000. And the amount of time that those earliest manuscripts are from the actual writing is not 500 years. It's not 100 years. It's a few decades to the, when the original was written. The original was written and there were copies made and our earliest manuscripts are within a couple of decades of those. That is the reason why skeptics that are serious skeptics, agnostics who are serious agnostics, who are doing the work are ultimately turning their faith over to being serious Christians. To which some people are like, yeah, but I mean, there's varieties, right? Like you're still getting copies and, and, and you might say that God's word was inspired in the original, original, original manuscripts. We don't have those. We only have the, the, the copies that came a couple decades later. How do we know that what was copied then is actually what, what was back then? And the reason being is because of the fact that we have all of these copies that went out throughout the whole world. So we're picking up translations from Asia and Africa from way early on and we're seeing that they sync up. It's not like someone who, who did a copy. Like, how many of you played the telephone game when you were growing up? That's awesome. The telephone game is great because you start with one statement and it ends up being radically different, right? I love that. Like, if I started over here with Keith and I, I told Keith something in his ear and I told him a statement, you know, a true statement, and, and, but I wanted to see what it end up with by the time it got back there to Doug. And if I started saying, okay, Keith, the white socks stink. And Keith passes that on. And then that's passed on. And it keeps on going throughout this room. And it doesn't just go throughout this room. It actually goes to everyone in Manuka. By the time it gets to the last person, do you think that that's going to be the statement that they remember? No. It's going to be like Errol wears white tuxes or something. It'd be like radically different. And, and that's why a lot of people don't believe this. It's because, look, there's so many translations. There were so many copies. That would be the case if there was one thing that was handed to one person and they copied that thing and then someone else copied the copy and the copy was copied upon that. But it wasn't. 
you have all these people sourcing the original manuscripts. It would be like if we had all of Manuka come into the, our parking lot and I got on a megaphone and said one statement, the white socks stink, and then everyone tweeted it. Then all of a sudden you'd have an accurate representation of what I actually said massively. It's not a copy of a copy of a copy. It's everyone going back to the original. In fact, today, you could go back to those earliest manuscripts, and if you learned Greek, and if you learned Aramaic and Hebrew, you could actually, you could actually do the very same work. And so the, th the confidence in what we have in the Bible today is so much greater than any other period of time. And again, there's going to be people that say, yeah, but what about the copies? There's differences in the copies. Not the translations, but the actual copies. And that's true. But they're, they're grammatical in nature. Um, Dr. Rodelnik was here this past week, and he talked about how it's kind of like this. If you've got um, a statement in the Bible, let's just say that, the, ba that the, the statement said something like, happy birthday. Then you're going to have some type of variety of that in some other translation, or not translation, but a, another copy that would say, happy birthdays. And as a scholar who's looking at the antiquity, you could say, okay, well, I don't know which of these two is actually the, the correct one, but it looks like either the Y wasn't completed to make an X or the X, the line continued on, but we need to keep on looking. And so they look into more, more manuscripts and they find something else that says happy birthday or happy, happy bath day. And so with that, all of a sudden, the amount of varieties that you have and the variances you have doesn't lead you to have less confirmation. You start seeing happy birthday show up more and more, and you see that the varieties, the variations, actually are affirming the original context. Okay, this was a, someone who's copying, it's their error. So the more variances you find, it actually leads to a deeper confidence in what the original words were. Not less confidence, more confidence. Okay? The Bible will get you the truth. But you need to open yourself up to take the next step, which is opening up yourself to the fact that the Bible is reliable to get you to change. That, that again, Dick Seavers and Vernon Johnson's goal was not like, I just want people to be smarter about a book of antiquity. So we have a more historical manuka. No, that's goofy. Like the, the, he, they believe that this Bible could actually change people's lives. It could transform you. And so if you're going to do that, though, you have to get into the Bible. Now, some of you are not readers. I'm someone who listens to a lot more books than I actually physically read. And sometimes I listen to the Bible and there's tons of ways that you could do that. So don't say that, don't think that all this is just about like sitting down and reading. But whatever you're going to be reading or listening to, you need to pick a translation. And just to help you wade through the confusion of that, there's kind of like three kinds out there. One is a, a called word for word. That's, that's the uh, formal equivalence translation. So you got the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, and the King James Version. This is like, wor this is word for word. So if the Greek says the dog jumped over the fence, it's going, they're going to put the dog jumped over the fence. The strength is, is that you get a good view of what the original said. The downside is, is that when you, have you ever translated something from Spanish to English or English to Spanish? The order is kind of switched up because they have a different way of lining up sentence structure in different languages. And so what ends up being, what should be translated, the dog jumped over the fence, might say dog jumped fence over or something like that where it's a little bit rougher read. And so you'll find in the King James Version or the ESV or the NASV having some areas that are a rougher sentence that doesn't sound as smooth or natural, which is why there's the thought for thought translations. 
Thought for thought is not um, enslaved to the idea of one word after the other, per se. It's actually trying to get the, the structure of the sentence and get an accurate reading of what it was actually saying in the, the original intent of that sentence. So you have the New Living Translation, the NET, which is the New English Translation, which is an awesome translation, and then what I preach out of, which is the NIV. Okay, so again, same content, but it's, it's a smoother read so that you can understand it a little bit better. And then there's the paraphrase. And I would say the gold standard of the paraphrase is Eugene Peterson's The Message. Have any of you guys read The Message? I think it's a great paraphrase. Now, I will qualify with this, and, and um, I, I have people that are close to me that disagree with this, but I, I really I don't believe that The Message, I wouldn't say that that is a a formalized translation of the Bible. I think it's like if I was reading a passage and studying the Greek, then I kind of gave it to you in my own words that gives a little bit more um, writer liberty to it. So I would look at this, if I was, if I was gonna compare this to coffee, which I have to, I would say that it would be kind of like um, the paraphrase, like the message is, is a frappuccino. A frappuccino is not a coffee. Frappuccino is liquid ice cream with a little bit of coffee in it, okay? It's very good. It's very, it's, it's, and, uh, it's good stuff, but it, I wouldn't say that a frappuccino is a coffee. Uh, um, if you're looking at the word for word, I would say that's kind of like black coffee. You can taste the grinds. You could, taste what, you could see where this, the beans were sourced. You could taste Guatemala in this cup of coffee. Thought for thought is like coffee with cream. It's the same thing, but it's like with a little bit of sugar and cream in it to make it a smoother, so it's easier to go down. And so I would say that, that, that it'd be black coffee, cream and sugar, or a frappuccino. That said, I would say that it's important for believers who really are studying the Bible to have one of each of these categories in their bookshelf so that you're actually going through. When I've read the paraphrase, or when I've read the message to see, to read over a passage I'm studying, it's really awesome to hear Eugene Peterson's perspective on that same text. And so I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. It just, I wouldn't use it as your primary operating thing. Now, you might be looking up at this and going, this is crazy though. I mean, there's no way I could afford all this. Well, that's good because it can be free. And uh, uversion.com does not pay us, but they should because we advertise for them enough. But it's this awesome thing right at your disposal. You could download a free translation. You could download that app and it has all these translations for free. So you could study God's word for free. You could actually go through like the reading guide at the end that goes Monday through uh, Saturday on this and actually go through just one of those passages and say, well, what did the different translations, how do they translate this differently? And you can go through that way. Not only that, but the YouVersion um, app has got tons of reading plans that are so helpful. Jump in on that if you haven't already. It's definitely good. Now, in the next part, this last part here, that it's, I, I, if you're not already taking notes, either take photographic memory, take a picture, or, or write this down. Because one of the biggest things I hear from people that are at this church about why they don't read the Bible is not, I just have a hard time believing it's true. That's not what I'm hearing. I don't hear, I don't know if it's a reliable historical document. I don't hear that. I hear it's confusing. The Bible is super boring in parts and super confusing in others. And I just don't know where to start to read. And so what I want to encourage you to do, if you're just getting started, to get in on that reading plan, but to do it this way. And there's this guy named um, Wayne Cadero, and he came up with this idea. And the idea is called SOAP. He didn't come up with SOAP, but he came up with the, this acronym for, for studying your Bible. And this is what I wish everyone could memorize this because it's awesome. SOAP is an acronym for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. And this is something that, that if you do this enough, you'll start naturally doing it. What I would encourage you to do is this, to get, whether it's the notes on, in the back of your book or just a piece of paper and just write down SOAP, S-O-A-P, and then you start off 
with Scripture. Wayne Cordero, again, he's a pastor out in Hawaii, and he came up with this, this process. So let's take that passage we skipped over, 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. But this is a, a verse that I, I put on a, uh, on a uh, little post-it note. I've got it in my truck because I'm trying to memorize this because this verse is just game changer as far as the way you view the Bible. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, they're human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I write... Next to the S, 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. I'm either in my Bible or I've got it on U version. I just read through it. Okay, I read through, the, I read through the verse twice. Great, what do I do now? Well, what's the O stand for? Observation. Observation is not what does this mean to me. Observation is what is meant in the original text. And so I read through it again. Okay, I read through it all. And then eventually I get down here to that last part. And the last part kind of jumps out at me. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then I draw an observation by that. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then I just simply write down an observation. Nothing profound, just what is it saying? Bible is God's words. The Bible's not man-made. Not, that's a simple statement, that's a pro, but it's a profound truth. I'm not asking how does this impact my life yet. I'm just saying, what is it saying? And I just write it down next to the O. Then I get to the A. What's the A stand for? Application. Or act, I like action better. That's way better. We'll think about that. Application is asking the question, okay, so how do I take that observation and what does that do in my everyday life? So this is what I would write down. I'll give God's words ultimate authority in my life. I'm going to give God's words ultimate authority in my life, and I'm not going to be the guy that's, that's choosing my own destiny, but I'm going to let God's word choose it for me. He's, he's going to be my guide. So you write down the application. And then you get to the, the P part. What, what does that stand for? Prayer. And then if you're not a journaler or you don't have a diary, me neither. I wish that I was. I wish that I was more disciplined, but I'm not. But just write down one line of prayer, either in your book or on some other piece of paper, to God. And this is something like, I, I would get to prayer, and I would just simply write something like this. God, thank you for giving me your words in the Bible. Help me trust your leadership more than I trust anyone else's, including my own, starting today. Not complicated. Not overly thought out. But if you do that, like with a verse a day, your life will be changed. If you've, if you've been frustrated with the fact that your life hasn't been growing in your faith, perhaps it's because you've been keeping yourself from the very thing that God intended to help grow it. If you feel like you're distant from God's perspective, perhaps it's because you've been distant from the very thing where God gives us his perspective. Man, NBC, try soap putting it out there <laughs> in every which way. Do that on a daily basis and you will see change, which will lead us to the final step, which is opening ourselves up to the fact that the Bible is reliable to get you to Jesus. Some of you have been feeling really stretched in your faith, like it's been colder and colder and colder. And the idea of Jesus was far more strong and passionate when you were first a Christian, but you feel so far from him now. I would, add, I would argue that a key part of that for many people is the fact that they've been wanting to believe the right things, but they have not been in God's word. This week, step into that. Because, you know, after Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and he's talking with his disciples. And when he's talking with his disciples, um, he says, guys, you know what? You, you missed it. What you missed was everything you grew up hearing about 
our Hebrew Bible from Moses was about me. Everything you heard in the Psalms that was poetic was actually pointing to me. The prophets were all pointing ultimately to me. Because if you actually get into this, you're gonna get to Jesus. You're gonna see him and his love for you and his perspective for life, and that will be a game changer. And, if, and as, a, as a church who's looking back at 1979, not romantically, but recognizing that these guys had the guts to step in and follow Jesus with all of their heart, what if in 2018, the last quarter, we stepped into that same passion saying, we want God's word to be something central in our life, and we want to start fleshing out in our daily life. When we get to, God, to, to the Lord's table, once a month as a church, we celebrate that because this is the reminder of what God's word is pointing towards, Jesus' sacrifice for us. The bread represents his body, the cup, his blood. I want to let you know that this table is for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. Unless. Paul talked about not taking this table in a way that that would be harmful. And the way that we would, would take this in that way would be to say, you know what? I said a prayer, but I'm holding on to sin in my life and I really don't care. I've got sin in my life and I'm going to continue holding on to this. And if that's you, this table will have no power. This process, this ritual will mean nothing to you because everything it proclaims, you're denying. See, Jesus came not to continue your slavery. Jesus came to liberate you. If there's sin in your life that you know, individually, in a relationship, whatever, and you've got that there, don't take this if you continue to plow through saying, I don't care what God says. Instead, let the power of this table be that you're letting this be a reset. God, I've held on to this up to this point, but now I'm letting go. And I'm letting you take over because I'm affirming what you came to do to liberate me from my sin, not to keep patting me on the back as I continue in it. In a moment, we're gonna exit our rows on the left-hand side, go around both sides of the table, Take the bread and the cup and bring it back. And in just a moment, we'll take that together. Do that now.